0: Well, if you remember last week, we ended off in chapter one, where King Ahasuerus, he, he was heeding the counsel of one of his seven uh, trusted advisors, remember those seven princes of Persia that were closest to him, uh, specifically Memukhan or, or Memukhan, and uh, by his counsel, uh, the king uh, actually removed Vashti. Now, if you remember, and and I want to emphasize this again, I want to reemphasize this point. Listen very carefully. When the king removed Vashti, he did it by decree of law. This is going to become extremely relevant in understanding the spiritual aspect of understanding this story. This is going to be huge into that. He removes her by decree of the law, and then afterward, he sends out letters. After she's removed, he sends out these letters to all the provinces throughout his kingdom instructing that all men, they're to be something. They're to be the masters of their own home. This is what they were to be. Essentially, what was he doing? He's sending out a message that, listen up, kingdom. What Vashti has done to me will not be tolerated in this kingdom. It is rebellion. And rebellion will not be tolerated. That's as simple as that. Therefore, the kingdom's instructing its men through these letters. Men, rise up and be the leaders of your home. Be the spiritual leaders of your home. Be the protectors. Do not let evil penetrate. Be the watchman on the wall. You are to defend the family. And when you look at this, this is just its a message that in the kingdom, there is to be order. In the house, in each of our houses, there is order. To be order and it's just something that carries a deep spiritual connotation because scripture over and over again commands us to do the very same thing does it not it does and we can even take it a step further if you want and look at the relationship that exists between the church and Yeshua it's a mere parallel the church is supposed to be humble the church is supposed to submit to its husband to its king Well, today we are going to continue on in this story. We're going to continue on in chapter 2. We're going to break into verse 1. And this is what we read. After these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus subsided, he remembered Vashti, what she had done and what uh, what he had decreed, uh, what had been decreed against her. Then the king's servants who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. Verse 3. And let the king appoint officers. In all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan the citadel into the women's quarters under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, custodian of the women. And let beauty preparations be given them. Verse 4. Then let young women, uh, let the young woman, singular, let the young woman who pleases the king be queen. Instead of Vashti. This thing pleased the king and he did so. So here uh, we see that because of Vashti's removal, the king, based upon the counsel given to him, he decides to look for a replacement, a replacement for Vashti. Now, if you remember last week, I, I took you to Matthew 22. I showed you that parable that Yeshua spoke concerning the kingdom of heaven and how it's likened to a king that goes forth to arrange a marriage for his son and so the king he sends out invitations but you remember uh those whom he sent out invitations they were not willing to come exactly how we've seen a when he sends out he calls for vashti she was not willing to come not just that but in this parable when when the king sends out the invitations and they don't come there's a response by the king the king is furious And the exact same thing is seen in the story of Esther. When Vashti refuses to come, when she is called at the command of the king, the king is furious. But here's the thing. That parable in Matthew 22 doesn't end there. It goes on to say the following. Look at what this says. And keep in mind that Ahasuerus is now inviting other women. After this had taken place, he's now sent out an invite Uh, to replace Vashti. And look at what this parable goes on to say in Matthew 22, verse 8. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. Now, you look at this parable and you realize that what is being described here, it is exactly, to the T, is what is transpiring in the story of Esther. Why? Because the story of Esther is prophetic. That's why. This, again, is proof positive that this story, there's more going on here than meets the eye. The story of Esther is actually telling us, it's foretelling how the future is literally going to unfold. And as I said before, is quite literally unfolding right before our eyes. Now going back to verse 4, I want to take you back to verse 4, in chapter 2 of Esther. There's one more thing that I want to point out, and that is this. Let's reread this. Then let the young woman who pleases the king, who pleases the king. One of the most critical parts to understanding this book, the book of Esther, to understanding how salvation works lies within this statement right here. If we want to understand how the end of the age is going to unfold, why some are literally going to be saved and why some are going to be refused, you have the this, this separation of the sheeps and the goats, then we need to understand what it is that the king is looking for. What is the king looking for in his queen? What is he looking for in his bride? It tells us right here. He is looking for a queen. He is looking for a bride that pleases him. That's what he is looking for. And I'll tell you, as believers in Yeshua, this is a critical component to understanding what it is Yeshua wants from us. This reveals to us what kind of bride Yeshua is going to embrace. He's only going to embrace a bride that pleases him. You want to be part of the bride? You want to enter an eternal life with Yeshua? This is the criteria that needs to be met. We need to please our king. The question is, well, how do we do that? What constitutes pleasing the king? How do you define that? Should we just all get in a circle and give our own interpretation? Fortunately for us, the Bible defines how it is and what it means to please the king. Taking you to the Torah in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 29, the Lord God is pleading. You will see that in this verse pleading with Israel. And look at what he says Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep all my commandments, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. This is what pleases the king. Keeping his commandments. What we talked about last week. Having the fear of God. It provokes us to walk in obedience. Vashti did not have the fear. Therefore, she did not obey. Those who fear the king, they go forward. They obey. Because there's a fear of the king. Ecclesiastes twelve thirteen. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. In other words, boil down life, all of the things in life, to one thing. It's boiling it all down to this, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. That's it. This is what pleases the king. Why do we do this? Well, look at what the passage says here. Exactly what we've seen last week unfold in the story of Esther. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. I told you last week, what Esther did was called into an account. Whether we perform what is good, whether we do righteousness, or we choose to follow the lust of our flesh. The lust of our eyes, the pride of life. We follow these things, we have one expectation. Removal. Refusal. Rejection. Death. In John 14, 15, these words that Yeshua speak ring so true. If you love me, keep my commandments. The beautiful word, love. If you love me, keep my This is relationship. You want to be in relationship with me? That's authentic and true. Yeshua says, keep my commandments. And this is actually taken right from the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, literally, verbatim. He's quoting himself, if you will, out of the Ten Commandments. We read it every Shabbat. Obedience is what pleases him. And we cannot afford to fall into the trap of Vashti, who refused her king. There's an interesting passage located in the book of Isaiah. And it explicitly talks about pleasing the Lord. And I don't find it any coincidence. This is something Darren talked about today, actually covered in his commentary. When he told me what he was doing it on, I was blown away. Because the Lord convicted me to put this in here, this what we're going to look at this week. And when I see stuff like that happen, I know the Lord's got a word. I know the Lord's moving. So I want to look at this because this passage has everything to do with what it means to pleasing the Lord. And this is what it says. Isaiah 56, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about To come, understand something about this text. It is prophetic. My salvation, quite literally in the Hebrew, it is Yeshua. You actually read it's Yeshua Ati. Yeshua Ati actually means my salvation. It is Yeshua. This is a prophecy of the coming of the Lord. Make no mistake. As we go through this, you're going to see this. This is a prophecy of the King coming. My salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. Well, let me talk to you about the righteousness that was to be revealed. When we go to Romans 3, Paul actually says, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, apart from Torah, has been revealed, being witnessed by the Torah and prophets. John is literally, or John, Paul, he's literally pulling from this passage, from this prophecy. And he's speaking to the Romans, see, because let me give you the backdrop here. Something was going to happen that was mysterious, something that was concealed throughout all time that would only be revealed with the coming of the Mashiach, with this revelation of the Father's righteousness, where the Word was made flesh. And what was that? Well, you can see that at the end of Matthew 28. Something interesting was commanded to the apostles that they were to go to the four corners of the earth And proclaim the Gospels. Go make disciples of all nations. So this is extremely deep. This is an extremely deep prophecy. And it's interesting because now it's going to go on to talk about, well, guess who? The foreigners, the aliens, the strangers that the Gospel was to go to. Look at what it says. In verse 2, we'll continue. Blessed is the man who does this, the son of man who lays hold on it, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. I'm going on to verse 3. Do not, this is the warning, do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, can I just say, how were the foreigners, the Gentiles, supposed to be joined to the Lord? Through faith in Yeshua, right? Do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, the Lord has utterly separated me from His people Nor let the eunuch say, here I am a dry tree. Going on to verse 4. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths. You say to the foreigners, to the Gentiles, the strangers, the aliens. To those who keep his Sabbath and choose what pleases me. Did you catch that? What is Sabbath observance? What is it about? What is Shabbat about? What does it accomplish? It pleases the king. Critical, critical. It goes on, choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant. It's interesting because Shabbat is what? It's part of the covenant. When you look at the Hebrew, Habarit, the words of the covenant. What are the words of the covenant? We're told in Exodus, the words of the covenant are the Asaret HaDevarim. They are the Ten Commandments. And one of which, which the Lord is bringing to the surface. One out of ten. Why not list all ten of them? Why does this one say, start with Zohor? Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Look around at the entire world right now. And what did Satan go out and steal from the church? He has stolen the Shabbat. The thief. Has come. What does the thief do? He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. We need there is a restoration that is supposed to be happening right now and is. There's revival happening right now, restoring back what pleases the king. That's why, you know, I have a heart for the church today to awaken them. That they have their house has been plundered. Satan has come in and stolen from them. Information, commandments that absolutely please the king. Critical information. You want to know how important this information is? How important it is to please the king? If we do these things, if we adhere to Shabbat, if we keep his covenant, we embrace these things. Look at what it says next. Even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. What is this talking about? Entering into eternal life. You want to see how important Shabbat is, how important his commandments are? The Aseret HaDevarim? Look at it. Understand the story of Esther. It's all about pleasing the king. This is what the king is looking for. Do not be deceived. Because I'm going to tell you, the church isn't just the only one that has been stolen from or, de- or deceived. This is spilling over into the Messianic community right now to where there are teachings going out saying Gentiles don't need to keep Shabbat anymore. It's not a sin. You better be on your guard today because deception is running amok. And what did Yeshua say? If it were possible, even the elect would be deceived. Look at what Hebrews 5.9 says. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Exact opposite of what Vashti did to Ahasuerus. She did not obey him. But here we find our king, King Yeshua, he's the author of eternal salvation to a specific group. Those who heed him. Those who obey him. Getting back to our story in verse 5, we read the following, in Shushan the citadel there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Yeir, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. So here we find a new character comes to the surface by the name of Mordecai or Mordecai in the Hebrew. And as we continue in this story, there is something that is mentioned in this passage that is going to become more and more relevant to the story. And that is the fact, notice here, a certain Jew. Mordecai is identified as a Jew. Something that as we continue, you know, I've got to tell you, this really becomes the basis of why the following events unfold. Moving on to verse 6. Kish had been carried away from Yerushalayim with the captives who had been captured with Jeconiah. Now, sometimes when you read in your Bibles, you'll read at times it'll say Jeconiah. At other times, it'll actually say uh, Jehoiachin. And so it's the same guy in in Hebrew, Jehoiachin. King of Yehudah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. Now, the timetable essentially given when he had carried him away it would have been around 598 to 597, somewhere in there. Uh, we're told Scripture in, in, in 2 Kings were actually told that Nebuchadnezzar carried him away in the eighth year of his reign. Moving on to verse 7. And Mordecai uh, had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther. Now, same person, just two different names. Hadassah being her Hebrew simply means myrtle. And then Esther, meaning star. The only time you actually see Hadassah mentioned anywhere is right here. The rest of the time, it's always Esther. And I I think the reason is obvious because of the name, the definition of what Esther means. It means star. So, and Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful, when her father and mother died, uh, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Moving on to verse 8. And so it was when the king's command and decree were heard, and when many young women were gathered at Shushan the Citadel under the custody of Haggai, at times pronounced Haggai, it's pronounced both ways, Haggai or Haggai, that Esther also was taken to the king's palace into the care of Haggai, the custodian of the women, verse 9. Now the young woman pleased him, and she obtained his favor. So he readily gave beauty preparations to her besides her allowance. Then seven choice maidservants were provided for her from the king's palace, and he moved her and her maidservants to the best place in the house of the women. So out of all the women that are brought in, we see Esther, she obtains a special favor, if you will, in the eyes of the custodian, the king's custodian, Haggai. Out of all the women, it was Esther who was provided seven choice-made servants. We look here. It was Esther who was literally moved, separated, and given the best place in the house of the women. It was Esther, Esther who, was, who was just totally set apart, if you will. If you haven't picked up on this yet, clearly Esther is referring to or represents something quite fascinating. Israel, the nation. She is a picture of the nation of Israel. And like what we see happening here with all this favor being given to Esther, the special separation, she's moved away from the other woman, given the best place of the house In the very same way, who does this sound like? Well, in every way, it sounds like Israel, right? A nation who was separated. A nation that was given special favor, that was honored above all elders. In fact, the nation of Israel is a nation that hasn't gone unnoticed. Even amongst the Gentile nations, we all recognize her as being exalted. There's something special about this nation. One of my favorite commentaries on the Jewish people was actually by a president of the United States, our second president, John Adams. In the early 1800s, he wrote a letter to Vanderkamp. And this is what he said regarding the Jewish people. It speaks volumes. He said, I will insist the Hebrews have contributed more to civilized men than any other nation. If I was an atheist and believed in blind eternal fate." I should still believe that fate had ordained the Jews to be the most essential instrument for civilizing the nations. They are the most glorious nation that ever inhabited this earth. Goes on The Romans and their empire were but a bubble in comparison to the Jews. They have given religion to three quarters of the globe and have influenced the affairs of mankind more and more happily than any other nation, ancient or modern. This favor that was given to Israel that's been bestowed upon the Jewish people. This is something that hasn't gone unnoticed. They've been separated, just as Esther was separated. Deuteronomy 14:2. Look at this. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure. Above all the peoples of on um, the face of the earth. And going to Leviticus 20, 26 on the heels of that. And you shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy, and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Esther was identified as someone special. I mean, above the rest, separated, exalted. You might call her a special treasure in the very same way that Israel is identified. So there's no question that she is representative of this beautiful nation adorned by God. Moving on to verse 10. Esther had not revealed her people or family, for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. In other words, Mordecai basically told her, don't tell anybody you're Jewish. Don't reveal who you are conceal this and you just think about the faith i mean let's just be honest you think about the faith and and who the elect of god who israel is and the eyes of the people while at one time people can look at them in awe how could, is it possible that these people could go back to the land who are few and number and literally overnight Take the land back. It's, it's, if you study the story of what happened in 1948 and what led up to, to 1948, it blows the mind. There's only one way any of that could have happened. There's only one way all the stories we read about could happen, as if God was with them. They're an awesome, it's an awesome picture. They're an awesome people. Everything that the Lord has done, it has been awesome. Incredible On one hand, we have all of this known and people see it with their own eyes. They're even in amazement. The nations, the Gentile nations heard about it even as Israel's coming out of Egypt and they trembled with fear. They feared the God of Israel. But there's another component of this and that is this. Israel, the elect of God, have a special concealment In other words, there are scales on the eyes of people in the world. They really don't understand what the faith is about. They really don't understand why we do what we do. They don't understand these components of why does Israel think they have rights to the land. There are scales in their eyes. In other words, there's concealment. So one ticket is is there's total revelation, another ticket is, another side of the coin is, is, well, there's total concealment. And you can see this throughout the ages. If they could see what we know to be true in our hearts, that Yeshua is the King of the Jews, that through Him is salvation. If they saw this with their eyes, they would fall to their knees today. If they saw the King coming with the heavens ripped open, they fall to their knees. But there is a concealment until a specific time. And you know what scares me? Is when you see concealment in Scripture like that, The people, there's a concealment because the Lord wants to bring the wicked into judgment. And then there's the revelation. Frightening, frightening thing. So here Mordecai tells her, do not reveal that she's Jewish. But it goes on to say, look at what it goes on to say. And every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women, the women's quarters, to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. I find Mordecai's care or concern for Esther to be quite interesting. He's pacing back and forth daily. Daily. His primary concern is Esther's well-being. Well, isn't that interesting? Because the Lord operates towards his elect in the very same manner. I mean, what does Peter say? He says in uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, Casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. This is what I love about our King. This is the hope that we have. We cast our cares upon Him. He cares for us. Don't let Satan deceive you and warp your mind telling you the Lord doesn't care. He doesn't care what happens to you. He doesn't care about your trials and tribulations that you're going through. He does care. Bring your cares to Him. He loves you. Psalm 34, verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their cry. The Lord is concerned for His children. His eyes are going throughout the land. We know that the eyes of the Lord go to and fro. His eyes are seeking the well-being of His people because He cares. They never leave us. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Let me tell you, you are going to need that comfort as we get into the days into the future. You need to have that strength of knowing in your heart the Lord's eyes are on you. He is watching and He loves you. Moving on to verse 12. Each young woman's turn came to go into King Ahasuerus after she had completed 12 months of preparation. According to the regulations for the women. For thus were the days of their preparation apportioned: Six months, six months with oil of myrrh. Six months with perfumes and preparations for beautifying women. Now, we're going to have an honest moment here for a second. And I'm going to let you into a very scary place called my mind and tell you when i first read this i'm going to give you my first initial reaction i look at this and i'm like 12 months of rigorous beautification going on here you have to ask yourself how unfortunate looking are these persian women <laughs> that they need 12 months to do this look at this it says what does it say here 6 months of oilmer 6 months of perfumes and I'm thinking, what kind of smells are we dealing with? <laughs> that we have to mask these things? Is the water bad? You well, know, clearly, I'm being silly. I should rarely let you in there. <laughs> what is actually going on here? Well, on a very simplistic level, you might just say, well, Daniel, can't you read? Simply, uh, this is the custom of the Medes and Persians. This was normal. This is what they did. Before they were to go to the king, they would go through these preparations. In fact, you could take it a step further and say, Daniel, I mean, look at all the kingdoms. There's always been customs in every generation and through all the various kingdoms of the earth, there would be specific customs that that, that would be appropriate for before a a, a bride would be joined to her king or concubines joined to the king. There are specific customs. and So you you could look at this and just kind of... Slough it off to the side and say that this is totally normal. Nothing out of the ordinary. However, I will tell you there is something a little out of the ordinary. There's something more going on here than meets the eye. And let me tell you why I say that. There are terms being utilized in this passage here that stick out. You know, if you're someone that has been immersed in Torah... If you're someone that's been immersed in Scripture as a whole, Genesis to Revelation, I'm telling you, there are terms within this passage that are flying off the page. You cannot ignore them, at least on a spiritual level. They cannot be ignored. Notice here that as part of the preparation in this passage, we're told that these women are anointed with the oil of myrrh and also covered in perfumes. Again, if you're familiar with Torah, these terms are very, very meaningful. And let me explain what I mean. When you go to the book of Exodus and you look at the composition of uh, the, uh, the anointing oil, the holy anointing oil, this is what we find in Exodus 30, verse 22. Moreover, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Also take for yourself quality spices, 500 shekels of liquid myrrh. The very first thing, this primary component, this primary ingredient in the holy anointed oil, which the Kohanim were anointed with, which all the articles, everything that was in the tabernacle, the temple, would have been anointed with. The primary one, the first one meant is liquid myrrh, or you could say oil of myrrh. And then it goes on to say half as much sweet smelling cinnamon, aromatic, you would say perfume. 250 shekels. 250 shekels of sweet-smelling cane. Again, perfume, aromatic. Going to verse 24. 500 shekels of cassia. It's kind of a form of cinnamon. According to the shekel of the sanctuary and a hint of olive oil. And you shall make from uh, from these a holy anointing oil, an ointment compounded according to the art of the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. So when I read and Esther 2.12, that there was preparation. Okay, There's this time of preparation with oil of myrrh and with perfumes. A flag goes up for me immediately on a spiritual level. Utilizing these terms in the context that, are be, that they're being used, it is amazing. These women are being prepared. You look at this passage. They're being prepared to be joined to the king. And the very sign that they are going to be meeting with the king is the fact that they are going through this preparation, right? Well, when you look at our time here on earth, when you consider the very sign that we've been given that we're going to be joined with our king, it's the anointing. It's the anointing. That is the proof that we are going to be joined with our king the anointing. Let me show you. Going to Second Corinthians chapter five, verse two. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. Understand, this is premeditated. This is this is the yearning to be joined with the King. This is all about entering into eternal life, being joined with the King. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. This is talking mortality, putting on immortality, corruptible, putting on incorruptibility. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, continuing on in this passage, verse 4. For we who are in this tent grown, meaning the flesh, tent of the flesh, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now, he who has prepared, look at this, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit, which is the anointing, as a guarantee this is the guarantee that we will be drawn to the king. It is the anointing. So we, like Esther, have a time of preparation where we're anointed with the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.13, just to build upon this, Paul says, In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth. This is putting your faith and hope in Yeshua, the king of the Jews. The gospel is, of your salvation, and whom also having believed, you were sealed, this is a special seal, with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. All this to say is when we go back here and we look at what's happening in Esther chapter two, that there is a time, a specific time of preparation, and there is that time includes the anointing. There's more going on in this story than meets the eye. This story is much deeper than just history. Moving on to verse 13 in Esther chapter 2. Thus prepared each young woman uh, went to the king, and she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the woman's quarters to the king's palace in verse 14. In the evening she went, and in the morning she returned to the second house of the women, to the custody of uh, Shashgaz, uh, the king's eunuch who kept the concubines, she would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her and called for her by name. This is amazing. Two specific conditions had to be met in order to be brought to the king. And that is this, he had to delight in her, and he had to call her by name. Now, in dealing with number one, we already know that if you want to be brought to the king, the king needs to be pleased with you, right? He needs to delight in you. There, you know, this is, this, it, it, when you look at the Bible, it's no biblical secret regarding entering into the kingdom of heaven. This is a reoccurring theme throughout scripture. Only those who please the Lord are going to be brought For example, going to the parable in Matthew 25, we read the following. He also had received two talents, came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents besides them. His Lord, or his king, you could say, said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. In other words, the king was pleased. This is what's going to happen. He did what the king wanted to be done. And therefore, he was embraced. The second condition that had to be met uh, for the king is that they had to be called by name. Well, for those of you who have been with us for some time, you know, just recently we did a message on the book of life. There's no secret in regard to if you're not called by name, if he does not know you by name, if your name is not written in the book of life, you are not getting in to the kingdom of heaven. Only those written in the book who are known, who are called by name, will make it. Well, now let me show you something about the nation of Israel that is so beautiful. In Isaiah 43, verse 1, we read, But now thus says the Lord who created you, O Yaakov, and he who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. He is called Israel by her name. So when we look at these conditions that are required to be brought to the king, the spiritual connotations, are, it's overwhelming. These connotations cannot be chalked up to some random coincidence uh, when it's literally woven out throughout the entire book of Esther. This is over and over again. We find this book is so deeply spiritual, powerful, and awesome. Continuing on in verse 15, we read, Now when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordechai, who had taken her as his daughter to go into the king, she requested nothing but what Haggai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women, advised. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. You think about something. I just want to point. So so Esther retains this favor of all who saw her. She gets this supernatural favor from the king's eunuch, um, from the king, the master of the women, Haggai. Again, you, you, you can't walk two feet in this book without tripping over some deep, profound spiritual connotation. Because you look throughout the Scriptures and all of a sudden these things start flooding your mind where people were brought into unfortunate circumstances. Circumstances they probably didn't want to be in, but guess what? God gave them favor in the eyes that they're around. Think about Daniel. Taken away. Do you think he wanted to be taken captive away from Yerushalayim? And yet, what did the Lord do? The Lord gave Daniel favor. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Think they wanted to be taken in captivity? Unfortunate circumstances. And what happened? They were given favor. Supernatural favor. Joseph. Thrown into prison. And what's it say? He's given favor in the eyes of the jailer. Over and over again. This this type of stuff you keep seeing. The hand of God. The hand of God upon his people. No question. The hand of God is upon Esther. There is no question. And who represents Israel? You see what happened to Israel? There is no question the hand of God is upon the nation. It's awesome. So, in verse uh, 15, obtain favor for all who saw her. Moving on to verse 16. So, Esther was taken to King Achashvarosh into his royal palace in the tenth month which is the month of Tevet, in the seventh year of his reign, verse 17, the king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained critical. These details are given for a reason. What did Esther obtain? Grace and favor. You look in the Hebrew, it's chen ve'hachesed. You look, chesed is what? Loving Kindness. This chesed is loving kindness and chen is grace. She obtains this grace and favor. In his sight more than all the virgins, so he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Vashti was replaced by the one who had, was given grace and loving kindness. This is amazing when you consider Psalm 84, verse 11. For the Lord is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will He withhold from those who walk uprightly. Going back to what I said before, what pleases the King? Walking uprightly. Keeping His commandments. Doing those things that please Him. You think about how did Noah make it? Again, the story of Noah. It's all about what? Escaping the wrath of God. And it's actually said, Noah found hen. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And he escaped. But why? What was it that Noah did in which he found grace in the eyes of the Lord? Well, interesting. We're told. Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. That is why he escaped death. You want to escape the wrath of the king, a wrath of the lamb, a wrath we know is coming? You need to walk in righteousness. It's going to be sacrifice. It's going to be battling with your flesh. But this is what it's going to take. You need to please the king if you want to make it.